And here's a commandment I, I will need to turn to. And maybe you will as well. It's not just three or four words like some of the others. Uh, but it is more of a full sentence. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 is the tenth commandment. And it's the final sermon in this what has been a mini-series on the Ten Commandments. And the next time, Lord willing, we will uh, continue to see what happened there, the presence, uh, the people's presence at the foot of Mount Sinai and their response to the law. Here's the final commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come to the close of the law, uh, we might also say we've only begun. Because as we will find in Exodus and throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, the law now needs to be uh, uh, unfolded and expounded for us and applied. Uh, And so the end is just the beginning in reality. And we ask you, God, it would be so for us. We We are just beginning in reality to live the Christian life as envisioned in the Ten Commandments. And we still have, as we know, many questions which are unanswered. To begin to live this life or to seek to live this kind of life is to have... A thousand ethical, ethical questions confront us, and we don't always have the best answers, but we confess to you, O oh Lord, that it is our desire, at least in our better moments, to live a life like this. Help us to do so, and let it begin in the understanding of the mind. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Tenth Commandment, here is a command which has to do with the heart. And in this, you might be thinking that the Tenth Commandment, uh, in fact, sums up all the others. And you would be right. The Tenth Commandment is like a kind of summary of the Ten Commandments. Uh, And in a sense, you could say the same thing about the first, but especially about the Tenth. Of this commandment, John Calvin says, the aim here is to show that since God wills our entire soul should be filled with feelings of love, we should dismiss from our hearts every contrary desire. Hearts which are full of love, And which are devoid of every contrary desire. That's John Calvin's treatment of the law. And I would agree with him. And insofar as we've seen that love is the fulfillment of the law. We've seen that repeatedly. Especially with regard. Well I almost said the second table. But really with all nine commandments. Not in the sense let me say again. That love sets aside the demands of the law. So as to render it unnecessary. But in the sense that what the law requires. Love does. So that the man who has love does what the law commands. Or to put it even more strongly, that without love, it is impossible to do the first thing that the law requires. Well, we see the truth of Calvin's statement again. God wills our entire souls should be filled with feelings of love. So we've seen that the law, the whole law is fulfilled in a single command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And with each of the commands, we have considered the inward aspects, all nine. But with that being the case, the question naturally arises as we come to the tenth, whether God is saying anything new in the tenth commandment. Once again, uh, we realize, as we did in the other nine, the inward aspect. And we would really have to admit that he isn't. He isn't saying anything new. But since equating desire to sin and sin itself is implied in the other nine commandments... And since we are so oblivious to this obvious principle, seeking always to evade the inward work of the law by locating its demands solely in the outward actions, as the Pharisees were apt to do, God makes this point, this implicit point, 
And the other nine commands explicit in the tenth. To desire to sin is to sin. That will be the big idea that we're unfolding throughout this sermon. And when we realize that, that to to desire to sin is itself sinful, then this command, the Tenth Commandment, brings our knowledge of our own sinfulness to another level, as we will find in Paul in Romans chapter 7. We discover about ourselves that we are lawbreakers in thought, word, and deed constantly. Now, if we were to ask what is being forbidden here explicitly, The answer is coveting of any kind, which is why we have the various examples. And what what it means to covet is simply to desire something that isn't yours. Desiring, uh, God says, for instance, your neighbor's house or his wife or anything that belongs to him. We can easily see uh, when we view this commandment in relation to the ones we've just been considering, the, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth. That this sin becomes the fountain of many others, which is indeed the point we're meant to see, becomes the fountain of theft or murder or adultery. It is the desire to do these things that leads us to do them. But again, let us see that the desire itself is sinful in order to prevent these other things, uh, in order to prevent these other things from happening. So uh, for for an example, we think of what uh, James says. When he explains the process and the order by which sin occurs and sin uh, is taken to its full extent. James chapter one, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. And so the order is this, and this is the order envisioned in the 10th commandment. First temptation comes, a man begins to consider a thing and he is tempted by it. That temptation, by the way, James says, did not come from God. Let no man say that. But then as a result of this temptation that he's considering inwardly, he begins to desire it. He wants to do it. That is automatic once he finds that he's tempted. And if he doesn't stop the process short right then and there, then he is bound uh, he is bound to go on with it. And so once sin has gotten hold of his heart, as it's apt to do, or temptation rather, there is really nothing left to stop him from carrying out the sin that was conceived in his heart. Thus, James says, desire formed in the heart gives birth to sin and sin to death. James is describing a process with which we're all too familiar. He isn't saying that desire itself isn't sinful, but he is telling us how it is that we come to commit outward acts of sin. It all starts, he says, in the realm of temptation and then beyond that of desire. And when these two things meet, temptation and desire, then outward sin is sure to follow. It is inevitable. It is automatic. And the obvious implied truth of James' teaching is the same explicit truth of the Tenth Commandment, and that is you ought to deal with these things before they ever get into the realm of the outward action. You ought to deal with them in the realm of the desire and of the heart. Stop sin short there. Mortify it there before it is allowed uh, to work out in its full process. Or else, he says, all manner of sin will come and death is a result. And so it's wrong to covet, very obviously. 
we're easily able to see why this is the case when we look at it like this in terms of its full outworking and its effects. But again, let me stress that even if these things are never carried out, if sin is merely conceived in the heart and by providence or by fear we're kept from carrying out those desires, they're still sinful. That is the point I wish to continue to underline and to be the clear emphasis of the sermon, that to desire to do something, even if you don't do it, to desire to do something sinful, let me say, or clarify, is itself sinful. And so, for instance, Jesus tells us, as you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, that even to lust for a woman is still to sin. It is still to break. It is still to break the seventh commandment. Just to desire another woman other than your wife at all, even if you do nothing, is sin. It doesn't just break the seventh commandment. We realize now, in light of the full teaching of the Ten Commandments, that it breaks specifically the Tenth Commandment. Involved in it is coveting your neighbor's wife. You are coveting, in other words, what doesn't belong to you. And so it's sinful in and of itself. But if we're fully to appreciate the sinfulness of the sin, we have to go even further. We should also see the misery that it brings. The misery of the sinful desire. What is worse than wanting something but not having it? The truth is these unfulfilled desires are what creates conflicts and animosities and resentments among men. Along with conflicts and strife. And so James says. James chapter 4 verse 2. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. There it is, James says. The source of untold misery, even in the life of the Christian, can simply be traced to this one thing. Unfulfilled desire. You want something and you cannot have it. And what is the result? The result, he says, is that you hate your brother. You become a murderer, at least in your heart. And what is worse, he says, it reveals a lack of prayer. Not only does this disrupt your relationship with your fellow man, but ultimately it disrupts your relationship with God and your ability to live the Christian life. How much we might have, James says, if only we asked for the right things and in the right manner. But the trouble, he says, and he, he, he says this explicitly, you covet, that you're breakers of the Ten Commandment. The trouble, in other words, is that our hearts are all wrong. That is why everything else is amiss. Our relationship with others as revealed in our conflict and strife. And our relationship with God as revealed in our lack of prayer or in the worthlessness of our prayers and the ineffectual nature of our prayers. The fact that our prayers do nothing. And so the truth of the matter is, as James helps us to see in that single verse, James chapter four, verse two. That these things simply don't stay in the heart. Even if we locate them there and say that to desire is itself sinful, we recognize that it never stays there. It always begins a process that works itself out one way or another. One of the main teachings of the New Testament is that as a man is inwardly, so he is outwardly. 
or we could reverse it. It's the same truth. As a man is outwardly, so he is inwardly. In other words, you can tell more about what is inside a man by what he does than what he says. Look at his actions. Look at his disposition. Look at his relationship and his prayers. And you'll know what is really in his heart. And very often what you will find about someone else, or let us just say about ourselves, and that is that the heart is full of sinful desire. It's full of coveting. Of course, this is a teaching you'll also find in the world, and that's because it's perfectly obvious. Even the unbeliever is able to see it. Look at a man's life, and then you will know what is in his heart and what he really thinks. Not what he says, but what he does. So I'm saying these things work themselves out inevitably, whether we realize them or not. And they create all sorts of conditions in our lives that we may not wish were there. But even if it's obvious to the world, Jesus puts it in a way that really does shock us. He tells us that it isn't what goes into a man that defiles him. He tells us it's what's already there. It is his evil heart from whence proceed all manner of sin, Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. It's because his heart is full of adultery and murder and deceit that his life is full of these things. In other words, the teaching of Jesus in agreement with the Old Testament is that the heart is desperately evil. The heart of man. And so he says, first clean out the inside and then the outside will also be clean. And so there really can be no doubt that this is a crucial commandment. It deals with the disposition and the desire, not the action, which is, I think we might realize in light of what I've been saying, the most important category, not the action, but the heart and the disposition and the desire. And in that sense, let us see, just as Jesus teaching on the matter also helped us to see the same truth. And that is that nothing so reveals our need for the gospel as the 10th commandment. A superficial reading of the Ten Commandments will lead a man, perhaps, to be self-satisfied, to conclude, as the rich young ruler did, that we have kept these commands from our youth, more or less, which is a common thought. You ask a man if he has kept the law, and more often than not, he will say that he has. I've never killed anyone. I don't think I've ever stolen anything, uh, except for that one time when I was little. Yes, I think I have kept the law from my youth. It's the exact same thing you find in the rich young ruler's response to Jesus' question. It's the common outlook of man. Man imagines that he is a lawkeeper and that he always has been. But in this he forgets the tenth commandment. Come to the last commandment and see if you can find a man who can honestly say that for a moment he has kept the tenth commandment. It is here at the final command that we realize we are hopeless That the law can never justify us because the law demands something of me that I cannot change on my own. And that is my nature or my heart. It deals with me as a sinner with a sinful disposition. And it says, desire what is right. Not simply do what is right, but desire what is right. But how can I do that? I cannot desire what is right. My heart is full of sin and sinful desires, and I find I cannot help it. In fact, now that you've mentioned it, now that you've quoted the Tenth Commandment to me, I find 
that sin is stronger than ever. The inward sin which it condemns has suddenly come alive in me. You tell me not to covet and the result is that I only covet more. And this is exactly what Paul describes. This dilemma that we discover about ourselves when we come under the teaching of the 10th commandment. The way it exposes us in our superficial reading of the Ten Commandments, and in our self-satisfaction that we really have kept the law. I won't reread this in full, but let me just read uh, four verses from that same passage, verses 7 through 11, which are the key verses. What shall we say then is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness Unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. You see, again, let me state, he uses this very command to describe the dilemma. And the way the law exposed and revealed what was really in him. The truth is, as Paul discovered, and as we all know, is true, that we never thought to covet in quite the way the law condemned until the law told us not to. Something of the paradox of the law and the Christian's experience. Just like when the parent tells the child not to do something, suddenly he finds he wants to do it. And so it is the law and this command in particular That arouses something inwardly that is present in each of us. And that we find we can't keep down in the presence of the command. And that is sin. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 11 and throughout the verses. So he goes on to teach in verses 13 through 24. So he read earlier. I won't read it again. It's a very full teaching and exposition of this idea. I won't try to expound it here. But what you notice is that Paul, again, in the presence of the Tenth Commandment, is speaking of an inward principle that came alive in the presence of the command. Something that is opposed to the very thing the law commands and commends, yet something which becomes amazingly more powerful and alive in the presence of the prohibition of the law. And that is, he says, indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. And here you notice as he describes it again as an inward principle in Romans chapter 7. He describes sin not as an outward action. But more properly as an inward disposition. As a desire he calls it and even all manner of evil desire. That is the problem he discovered through the 10th commandment. Amazing to think all this resulted from the single command. I mean, Paul's perplexing experience that he recounts in Romans chapter seven. His awareness of his own sinfulness. But we should also realize that his choice of the 10th commandment was intentional because, as you know, it was possible for him to say that he was blameless with respect to the law as the rich young ruler did. Only when he considered the first nine commandments. You may remember he says that. Philippians chapter 3. With respect to the law. Blameless. Of course even then it was only a superficial uh, view of the law that allowed him to do this. 
But again, and here is the important point, there's no way to do this with this command. It's simply impossible. So Paul is saying, there I was, pondering it, seeking to keep it as an honest Jew and Pharisee. Yet here was the amazing thing. The more I did so, the more I found this opposing principle within. This contrary desire, this indwelling sin, this evil heart. And so he was exposed by the Tenth Commandment. He found that he wasn't righteous by the law and that he couldn't find life by it. All of this occurred by simply considering what it is to covet. And so the result was that he came to see his great need for the gospel. He was now, as he realized, a lawbreaker, a sinner, a man who was full of evil desire. Could he be justified by the law in light of this law? No, he could not. What is more, could he ever hope to keep the law by his own inward resources, obviously and equally? No, he could not. What the apostle required is what all of us require in light, again, of the searching nature of the Ten Commandment. And that is that we be changed thoroughly inwardly. Because the problem is that inside I'm all wrong. All of my desires are out of sort. I desire all manner of evil because my heart is evil. In other words, if you were to go on with what he says in Romans chapter 8, and again we'll see the flesh-spirit contrast. He works this out in chapter 8. And if we were to describe it in terms of what he says in Romans chapter 8, what the apostle needed is what we all need, and that is to be taken out of the realm of the flesh and its lusts and its sinful desires. The flesh conceived, as he says, as a way of life, as a disposition and a desire, setting itself opposed to the will and the desires of all that is good. He says, I'll just read one verse. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Verse 7, verse 8 as well. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, nor indeed, I would add, do they want to? He needed to be taken out of that realm and placed into the realm of the spirit. He needed to be subject to the work of the spirit, the inward renovation of the spirit. The work, as we know from Jeremiah, of writing the law upon our hearts, which is not just a statement of the fact that the the Holy Spirit makes us aware of the law inwardly so that we know it inwardly. But as he locates it in the heart, what Jeremiah is saying is that he is changing our desires so that now they conform to the law. And so the Christian is one. We discover if you take the fullness of what Paul is teaching, you don't just uh, camp out in the dilemma of Romans chapter 7, but you bring out the full teaching as he arrives at the solution in chapter 8 is that the gospel is the solution. And in particular, as he works it out in Romans chapter 8, it is the work of inward renovation by the Holy Spirit who makes the Christian a new man and who makes him one. As opposed to the old man who cannot please God, now one who can Not simply because he knows the law, but because now his desires are bent toward God. Now he not only knows the law, but he wants to keep it. He walks not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's the answer. That's how the gospel answers the question, at least in part. Those who are in the spirit, those who walk by the spirit, their lives look entirely different. God has changed our lives. He has changed our desires. But let me notice two further points as we uh, as we look at this command, especially in light of the teaching of the New Testament. One of the things 
that we notice, and I've, I've often wondered at this, and that is that the coveting in particular is often brought up in the New Testament. And I'll just give you some examples of that. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 where it is called uh, or at least associated with idolatry. Therefore put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Again, closely associated with idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or with extortioners or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. And then in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3, Paul draws another connection. He equates it this time with sexual immorality, very similar to what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It belongs, he's saying, in the same class. The covetous person is someone we ought not to associate with because the person who is full of sinful desire is not someone who will benefit the church in any way. In the same way, a sexually immoral person will not benefit but harm the church. And so he says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as it's fitting for the saints. By the way, uh, I, I don't think I said this uh, what, what I'm noticing here is not just the fact that coveting is so often noticed or mentioned in the, New, in the New Testament, but the way it's associated with other sins. You keep finding it either directly associated with or in these lists. Idolatry, fornication, and so forth. Paul is saying in that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you can expect to find such persons in the world, obviously, not just sexually immoral, but covetous, idolaters, and so forth. But Christians aren't like that anymore. And finally, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul tells us that it is the love of money or coveting money that is the root of all kinds of evil, implying, again, that not surprisingly, transgressions associated with, with this command lie at the root of every other transgression. And so when we see this sin uh, popping up again and again in the New Testament, the pattern we notice is that covetousness keeps coming up in connection with other sins. Covetousness, Paul says, is idolatry because it involves a desire so strong in one's heart that it becomes his God. At a certain point, a man desires something more than God. And so his covet, uh, what he covets becomes his God. To be full of desire for anything more than God or I could even say other than God, to be full of desire for something other than God, or what God by his providence has allotted to you, is to throw him off the throne of your heart. And it is to give preference to another, namely your own desire as opposed to him and his will for you. It is, the New Testament says, idolatry. And in that sense, going back to James' teaching, it is the desire that is a very good indication of where you stand with God, not simply with yourself and your circumstances, but with your maker. And it was in this sense that Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans spoke of the religious affections. Where does your heart stand? Likewise, covetousness is 
Paul says, sexual perversion or sexual immorality in the very obvious sense that Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that to lust for a woman is to commit adultery. It is. There's an equation. An equivalence. And men, if we realize this, it would go a long ways towards curbing sexual sin itself. If we dealt not so much with the actions, but with the desires. If we dealt with sin right there and then. And yet, as it is, we deal not with the desire. And like James says, sin being conceived in the heart gives birth to actual outward sin leading to death. All manner of sin and misery and spiritual death and eventual death proceed in its wake. Deal with it in the heart. Covetousness is sexual immorality. It is an illicit and immoral desire. But dealing with the New Testament teaching, there's another connection I want to notice. And that is the connection, as we saw at the beginning, and let me just say a few more things here about the connection between covetousness and love as an opposing principle. In Romans, uh, this time, chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, we find another quotation of this commandment. This is what Paul says. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Again and again we've seen this throughout all the commandments, but this is a fitting way to conclude our study of this commandment. What Paul says in these verses. The reason for this should be obvious. That love fulfills the law. We've seen it again and again. But if love fulfills the law, the question that I want to answer here is, what is love? And then it will be clearer still why love fulfills the law, and in particular this commandment. Well, I just lost my lens. What is love? Well, love is the opposite of coveting. And yet it deals with the same category. Love is the disposition of the heart. It deals with the desires. And in particular, speaking of love, it is a desire for the well-being of another. And until that is true of you, you do not have love. And thus we see where love is present, it becomes a wellspring in us for all of the good deeds envisioned in the law. Just as conversely, where love is absent and the desires are all wrong, the, the sinful evil desires become a wellspring for us to break the other nine commandments. But the man who truly loves his brother as himself, Paul says, well, he won't steal from him and he won't take his life. Nor indeed, and let me underscore this, will he even want to. It isn't something that would even occur to him to do. The issue, as Dalma says in his book on the Ten Commandments, is not simply putting our evil desires to death, but replacing those evil desires with good desires. In that, in that sense, the only remedy for coveting is love. Love is found in the gospel and birthed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Not, a, not love as we thought to love, but love as God has loved us and as God has enabled us to love. Now that we are his children and we are beloved of God, 
And so we have a negative command once again. You shall not. It's a prohibition. But in that prohibition, as in the others, we find a positive precept. Something God is telling us to do. We discover that God is not content with our obedience until our hearts and our desires always and only want what is best for our neighbor. That is what the Tenth Commandment teaches us. That is what John Calvin says. The aim here is to show that since God wills our entire soul should be filled with feelings of love, we should dismiss from our hearts every contrary desire. That's what I began with. And that's what we end with with regard to that commandment. But we're also at the end of the Ten Commandments. And rather than preaching a final sermon, which I thought about doing, I'm just going to sum up matters here at the very end of this sermon. And then we'll go on uh, to proceed in Exodus 20. I want to make a few observations here from the, from the uh, Shorter Catechism and then from Calvin uh, as we close very briefly. The Shorter Catechism says this. And when it concludes its teaching on the law, it asks this question. Is that, this is 82. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? It's interesting that they end in that way. You deal with this thorough exposition and then they ask the question. But it's the question we have if we understood the Tenth Commandment. Wait a second, I can't live like this. I can't even will to live like this. And here's the answer. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Perfect obedience is impossible, it says, even though that's the standard. Question 84, skipping 83. What doth every sin deserve? Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. None is righteous, not even one, Paul will tell us. And because none keep the law and the law demands perfection, all stand condemned under the law. And as I said, there is no command that teaches us that more uh, clearly than the 10th commandment. But finally, and this will lead into the teaching of Calvin, what doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? Answer to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life. With the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. It's a very crucial moment in the confession or the catechism if you're not familiar with it. Uh, those few questions following the teaching on the law. But having said that, I want to pivot and close our study with what John Calvin says. As he closes his study on the Ten Commandments in the Institutes. And that is with uh, what is famously being called the three uses of the law. And uh, Calvin says, along uh, the lines of what we just considered, we've looked through the law and we've ended where the confession or the catechism ended. And that is, wait a second, I can't live like this. Well, that is the first use of the law. It is to expose man. It is to humble man. And it is ultimately to drive him to Christ. It reveals his need for the gospel in a way nothing else could. That's the point to understand. There is nothing that is so able to make a man see his need for the Savior like the law. Nothing. And so the point is, let the law do its work. Let it drive a man to despair. Let it cause him to see his bankruptcy in the, under the judgment and the justice of God. 
The reason that men are not interested today to hear of the gospel and the remedy that the gospel offers is because they've not first learned their need of the gospel through the law and its work of convicting and condemning. It's because preaching today is devoid of the law and Christians hardly ever speak of it. And to that end, a church and a ministry which avoids this aspect must not be surprised if men do not repent and believe. Why would they? Now, a second use of the law, just briefly notice, is to restrain the unregenerate in the sense that Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy 1. I won't say any more of that. But the third use Calvin uh, gets to, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, what Calvin calls its principal use, and that is to instruct and to train the godly in the way they should go. And in, in many ways, that's the way we've been looking at the law. We've been seeking in the law the will of God. And that is a valid thing to do once the first use has uh, has fully driven us to Christ. Let me try to illustrate what I mean by this. If you think of the woman caught in adultery, John chapter eight, you remember that Jesus pardons her sin, just like you and me. She is exposed by the law as a sinner and she is hopeless uh, with respect to her own law keeping. And yet grace is what frees her. She is pardoned freely by the grace of Christ. But do you remember what Jesus says to her at the end, having freely pardoned her by his grace? He says, go and sin no more. Now imagine, that's where the narrative ends, but imagine the situation as she found it at that very moment. She was immediately, as one who was pardoned again freely by the grace of Christ, instructed not to sin, to live a life, in other words, of righteousness, But in this, her dilemma became, how was she to do this? How was she to fulfill the command and the words of Christ? Go and sin no more. Where, in other words, would she find the guidance to instruct her to live a life as Jesus commanded her, devoid of sin? Sin no more, he says. And here is where the law comes in, in its third use, as a help and a guide to the Christian, like the woman caught in adultery, freely pardoned by the grace of Christ. Calvin says the law is a splendid instrument for giving them each each day a better and more confident understanding of God's will to which they aspire and for confirming them in the knowledge of it. It's a splendid instrument, he says, in the hands of the godly, in the hands of the redeemed and the pardoned, those who know what grace is. And that is the sense in which we ought to see and use the law. It's an instrument by which we discover the will of God for us. An instrument uh, which uh, we realize uh, we are always learning in the midst of the Christian life. We're always using, we're always learning by, sometimes by transgressing, sometimes by obedience. But the point is we're always learning. We're always discovering the will of God. And we as Christians, or as Jesus called uh, his followers, his disciples, that is his little learners, We're always seeking to learn more and more what it is that God wants us to do. Now that we're in the flesh, we seek to live a life, or excuse me, the spirit. We're seeking to live a life that's pleasing to God, the kind of life we could never live so long as we were in the flesh. And it is precisely at this point that we find that the Ten Commandments are of such great use and value to the Christian. Amen. And let us stand together and singing together hymn 454.